Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 30th, 2020. The Come On, Man, I Heard You Like Me edition. Oh, God. Oh, great. Get the reference? You got that reference? <laughs> I'm David Plotz. Joining me, of course, from their particular lockdown quarantines, John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York. Hello, John. Hi. And Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from her home in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. On today's GabFest, we will talk about Tara Reid's accusation that Joe Biden sexually assaulted her in the early 1990s and how that could shake up the presidential race then should colleges and elementary schools reopen in the fall? Can they reopen? Must they reopen? We will discuss that. And we will talk to astronaut Scott Kelly. He lived a year on the International Space Station. He is here with wisdom about how to live well in tight spaces. Plus, of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. According to Tara Reid, in 1993, when she was a Senate aide, Joe Biden accosted her in a hall, pushed her up against a wall, and penetrated her with his fingers. Reid's story, which she has told in different forms, in different ways over time, uh, had not been getting too much attention in this campaign until the last few days when two bits of corroborating evidence came out. Two different people, but notably a former friend of hers, a Democrat named Linda Lacasse, confirmed to Business Insider that Reed had told her the assault story back in the 1990s, shortly after, a couple of years after uh, it allegedly happened. And then a tape surfaced from Larry King, the Larry King show from more than 20 years ago, in which a woman who has been identified as Reed's now dead mother called in to discuss problems her daughter had experienced with a prominent lawmaker. Set against this are Biden's denials, which have been made through a spokesperson that Reed's account was true, insistence by other Biden staffers at the time that Reed never raised the issue or complained officially or unofficially, the lack of evidence of any complaints by Reed, although she said she had filed them, and kind of less attractive claims that Reed is an unreliable narrator and is a, just an eccentric person. So, uh, Emily. Lucky where do me. You, where do you stand now on where we are with this allegation and what we as voters and what Joe Biden as a as a candidate need to do about it? I think we as voters need to probably wait longer because this story is like simmering in a way that it's changing. And so the only thing I find surprising is when people profess great certainty, like they're absolutely sure that Reid is telling the truth or they're absolutely sure that Joe Biden would never do such a thing or they're sure he would. There's just a lot of uncertainty here. I mean, this story falls into the 
trickiest category of sexual assault allegations. It's from a really long time ago. The person who is making it has some facts that line up on her side and then others that really seem to question it. There's a piece by a prosecutor in USA Today kind of outlining why if he was looking at this case either as a defense lawyer or as a prosecutor, he would be worried about it and see a lot of holes. And then it's just from a really long time ago, which makes it just hard to evaluate. We have had other cases like this in the public realm since the Me Too movement. I'm not talking about the cases with a a real pattern of women coming forward, which I think are in an easier category. So Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, by the time those people all line up, we get a lot of certainty. But then there are other cases where it's it it just is hard to recover the past. And I think the Me Too movement in some ways has been too quick to assume that women are always telling the truth in these circumstances. And because these are cases in which like there can't be any legal recourse, the question of what standards to adhere to in deciding how to weigh the evidence um, or what kind of due process to have, all of that is just sort of swirling around in the court of public opinion. But, so I worry I mean, about all of that. Emily, I just want to kind of Attack. argue with your with your <laughs> one of your opening premises, which is that we had a prosecutor saying, you know, he would worry. Of course, there a prosecutor would worry about. There is no criminal case against Joe Biden. There's no preposter- preposterous to think about, and it you you wouldn't even look at this as a is is there a potential criminal case against Joe Biden? The question is, is there a bunch? Is there kind of persuasive evidence that this or something similar to what has been described did happen not is this a provable case we're never gonna have a provable case and the and the evidence that's come forward which is i mean the the prosecutor in that article you pointed us to said well this this phone call that was made to larry king show is as a prosecutor i'd be leery of it because she doesn't specify what was done and so that makes this claim weaker to me it makes the claim vastly stronger which is just that there was 20 years ago we have Contempor- roughly contemporaneous evidence that this woman had said something bad happened to her. She had no reason at that time to lie. There was no plan to disrupt a future Joe Biden presidential campaign. It's like she something had upset her enough that her mother was calling into the Larry King show, or at least it, there's 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 some evidence that that is the case. And that was what would concern me. Not is there a prosecution that's possible. It's is there like evidence that suggests that something like this happened. And increasingly, there does seem to be evidence of that. Well, two things. I mean, one is that her mother used the word problem and didn't specify further. And Reed's own story has changed. This went from being an inappropriate touching story, the kind of which we are familiar with about Joe Biden, to being a really disturbing story about sexual assault. And it changed over the course of the last several months. So that's a real issue. And the um, phone call to Larry King does not at all resolve that question. I think the second thing I was trying to say is not that every sexual assault allegation has to be proved in court to be something that, um, you know, we reckon with, but that in this realm of these long ago cases that, as you say, would never at this point be able to rise to that level of proof, we are scrambling around and fumbling to figure out what to do with them. You know, in some cases, we've had people who've seemed incredibly 
durable as witnesses um, in terms of their credibility coming forward. So I'm thinking of Anita Hill. I'm thinking of Christine Blasey Ford. And I don't see Tara Reid in that category. Now, I realize in saying that, I'm basically showing my own bias against people who are alleged victims who also have a lot of, like, questionable actions in their past. I mean, reading about Reed's activities with this uh, horse rescue operation she was involved with where the owner and employees there are saying, like, you sold stuff from us, and it just looks really, like, not credible. And I guess my own basic bias is that if you are going to bring a really long ago um, serious allegation against a public official... And you can line up some pieces of corroboration, but not real proof. Your reliability is going to be on the line. And we should not err in the direction of deciding to let people destroy the careers of the, of men they accuse in those settings without some real sense that we are sure. Because otherwise, we are in a world in which the Me Too movement has turned into a place where we're perilously close to letting people who who lie or who have problems destroy other people. And like that cannot be the end result here. So I th- one of the challenges of this moment, though, is that everything you just said, Emily, um, people would say that's what Brett Kavanaugh's defenders were saying, which was don't, right. re- don't rush to judgment, let it develop, and don't immediately assume that everything Christine Blasey Ford says is 100% true. And 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 then anybody who said, just as you just did, it's for the purposes of of establishing veracity of claims, it's worthwhile to look into other things outside the scope of the immediate allegation. There were plenty of people who said, don't you dare raise anything about Christine Blasey Ford that has about her life or her other claims in life or her veracity and other kinds of stories because you're attacking the victim. So the the challenge in these instances is you have a question is, what's the right venue to adjudicate this? You know, the Senate Judiciary Committee is the wrong venue. The presidential campaign is certainly the wrong venue. And so, but that's the venue we have. So then we're in these the venues, which are pretty much the worst possible place in the world to adjudicate claims. So we pull in where we can, which is why <clears throat> I thought, you know, it was useful to bring in the prosecutor, not because he would prosecute the case today, but because you've got to grab a standard from somewhere. And the court of law is not a crazy place to draw it from. But the minute you do that, you pull in things that that uh, get you into this, but wait, if the standard was this for your guy, why wasn't it for my guy? And then the final question is, what are we trying, what's the ultimate question here? Is it, yes, whether it happened, the level of what happened, was there workplace retaliation for her bringing the claim forward? And then is what does it say or not say about a person who's asking to be president? And what was the standard for Donald Trump and the claims that have been made against him? Uh, Credible, multiple sexual assault allegations, him being on tape bragging to the kind of behavior that people are alleging. What was the standard for him? And should that be applied then to Joe Biden? So it's a lot of venue and standard questions, which shift depending on where you stood beforehand. Yeah, I mean, I think those are great points. I mean, I don't know what to do about the taboo uh, about questioning victims and their credibility in a situation like this, because in the end, that's what it all comes down to. And I mean, 
I'm not a real lawyer, but as someone who went to law school and thinks about legal standards, like, I just don't know how you get away from that. I mean, we have to have some kind of faith that people are telling the truth and that we haven't created a situation in which, you know, the quote idea of believe women, which I have never ascribed to as something that journalists or um, people determining consequences can 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 run with like if your friend comes to you should you believe her sure but like the notion that that is going to carry us through all these tricky questions when people's careers and reputations are at stake like no i'm sorry sometimes people lie and we have examples of that that it has been very rare it's really important not to damage all credibility of sexual assault victims by saying that something occasionally happens but you also can't rule it out so, but, you Emily, know. but I don't know. I mean, like, the, I think your John's Blasey Ford point, which I was stumbling towards and failing to get to, but John got to eloquently, I think really puts it on the mark. I mean, many of us were believed that Brett Kavanaugh should not have gotten a Supreme Court seat in part because of what Christine Blasey Ford said about him and what Christine Blasey Ford. I'm not going to say that the way that her allegations are exactly the same as what Joe the allegations against Joe Biden are Tara Reid or that she is she is a less credible person than Tara Reid. But it, it's in the same family. And like, how do we how can we be consistent if we're willing to sort of allow that circus and that kind of that public thing to happen at the Ju- Judiciary Committee two years ago? How can we not look at what's happening with Joe Biden in the same sense of 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 sorrow and despair and and confusion and and to accept that like these pieces of corroborating evidence which i do think that the larry king call and i do think the the linda lacasse piece are very they very strongly indicate that at least at the time tara reed said something happened with joe biden that made her very uncomfortable and was really difficult so i guess what i would say about ford is that i think that it at first glance has more similarities than it actually has for a few reasons. So one of them is that, you know, Kavanaugh was being accused of something in high school. And so I think one question at the outset was like, well, should this be something that ruins someone's career, something someone does as a teenager? And I think I remember us talking about it at the time and feeling like, look, you know, if he is honest about the fact that it seems like he was doing a lot of drinking, that, you know, he might not remember this. Maybe he had blacked out, but like that it seems as if he had contact with this woman. She is saying this. She is actually like does not seem to have the kind of red flags about reliability that Reed has that like that is something that he could grapple with and instead of just like denying the whole thing and acting like it was crazy. Now, obviously, if it didn't happen, then he shouldn't be doing that. But for me, it was much more about his way of handling it than it was about the idea that one teenage transgression should keep him off the Supreme Court. Then we had the fact that there was a woman from his experience in college who came forward. And so there was that sort of like question of patterns. And then there was just the due process problems where there was an FBI investigation that was supposed to be happening, but it was totally cut off. Um, And so we never really got to the bottom of other kinds of behavior. And it was it was like left as a big question mark. And so at least to me, those circumstances make this different enough. But I also think that, you know, there are these other 
cases and problems where it's like, so think about Keith Ellison, who was accused of domestic abuse in some way, which then seemed like it pretty much fell apart, if I remember those details correctly. And like, it seemed as if his whole career was going to be gone. Perhaps we're at a point in which the questions of how we judge these cases, like where we need to be more careful rather than more in the stance of letting them have really serious repercussions for people who are being accused. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, I've been report I have reported on these stories starting like in the late 90s or around 2000. And when I started doing that work, it was so much because women were not being believed or nobody really wanted to think about it. And so it was all just sort of shunted to the side. But I do worry about the due process gaps we've kind of created and and what that means in terms of verifying and making sure that, you know, we are not just like having people presumed guilty when there's really no way for them to prove themselves innocent. Well, I, I absolutely agree that worrying about the due process gaps is, is it really important and, and the destruction of someone's career by a false accusation or by an exaggerated accusation is wrong. I just think it is, I, it makes me very uncomfortable that so much of the concern about due process comes out when it's somebody who is, <laughs> is on your team not, I'm not saying this to you, Emily. I'm, this is this is on one's own team. That and then one gets concerned about due process, and much less so. Like the Duke process concerns didn't come out around Monica Lewinsky and Paula Jones, or they. I should say the 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 people have such a strong tendency to look at this with motivated thinking, and when their own guy is accused, look for the extenuating circumstances, be very concerned about due process, and much less so when it's the other team. And that really, really, really concerns me. I think that's totally fair. But I also think this is... I don't think... I don't know know anything about Joe Biden, but there are a lot of people who came forward and said he made them physically uncomfortable with the way he behaved. And so it's not that there's no other evidence of Biden being somebody who is a... makes women physically uncomfortable you there don't is think other this evidence assault allegation is in a different category it's a totally different category but i it is a totally different category but i also think that the blasey ford allegation was in a re- pretty different category than the other accusations about kavanaugh's behavior so, so I, I guess I the think, other thing i'll say is like i completely hear you about the selectivity i think though that you know it's important that john raised the dozen allegations against president trump because we're not judging joe biden in a vacuum right now we're judging him as the person who is running against donald trump and so you know the notion that like feminists or women are going to benefit if donald trump is reelected versus joe biden given the that's two totally things different stand point for, but it's True. related because this is not look i mean for me the really deeply frustrating thing about all of this is the timing because if tarid Tara had come forward months ago when this race was still really on, we could have evaluated in the context of Joe Biden versus the other people running against him, including people like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar, who presumably don't have such baggage in their closets, um, or Bernie Sanders, for that matter. Now we're in a totally different situation. And there's a way in which like that, I mean, that has to affect your judgment, not necessarily about what you think happened, but how you're going to weigh it. And women and feminists are allowed to be practical 
pragmatists, just like everybody else. We are allowed to think about how we vote and the choices we make and weigh the gravity uh, of accusations in that context. Uh, absolutely. But then don't couch it. Then then that then frame the argument around that, not around, oh, this is a different standard. Oh, we have to look at this differently. I think it is completely legitimate. And I think and I absolutely believe this, like presented with Joe Biden and Donald Trump on every frame of analysis, I would pick Joe Biden for a variety of reasons. But but I don't think that you should then frame the discussion around sexual assault and allegations of sexual assault as being about the, 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 the sort of uh, make it about sort of minimizing this accusation. Make it about you can make it about the pragmatic choice we're having. And that's that's perfect. That's fine. But I would frame it that way, not about this allegation shouldn't be looked at carefully or ca- given given well, given serious consideration. That. I certainly She's didn't not, say yeah. that. Like, don't put words in my mouth. That's not fair. Yeah. 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 No. Uh, yeah. No, you weren't. You weren't saying that. Emily. I think you have two standards problems. One is <clears throat> what is the standard for adjudicating this evidence and the specific actual single claim here. Um, and in this case, it does seem like there's more corroborating evidence, contemporaneous con- corroborating evidence than in the Ford case. But then there's a second standard question, which is, are we talking about a single case here or a pattern of behavior? There was more of the pattern of behavior question with Kavanaugh, although, as David quite rightly says, there were lots of the first time we heard about Joe Biden in this in this neighborhood of of uh, issues was the pattern of behavior issue, which gets us to the political question, which is what does he do? Because he didn't quite answer the pattern of behavior on the kind of handsiness front with uh, with great alacrity and great elan. Um, and so to the extent that he has to manage this now, it's a huge political challenge for him, obviously, because of the facts of the case, but also because he's not so good at this. Um, and then we have a third kind of standard question, which is the one you guys are saying, uh, talking about, which is related, but obviously quite separate, which is what I was trying to get at when I was saying, what's the goal of this inquiry? Uh, The goal of the inquiry is to figure out what the truth of the matter is. But then with that truth, what are what are we saying about Biden's character, about the job? And are we doing it as a standard by itself or is it a comparative standard? Because I'm a big fan of standards on their own. Um, But the reason I'm lonely in that fight is um, Campaigns and presidential elections don't happen on their own. There's obviously an other person. It's not, to quote Joe Biden, it's not compared to the almighty. It's compared to the opponent. And the problem with these kinds of discussions is that is that when you move to make that other conversation, when you have that other conversation and leave the first two standards questions unresolved, people can accuse you of shifting the goalposts because or fleeing the argument, even though you're just trying to kind of deal with all its component parts. And I'm not sure how we I think we're in the worst possible moment, as Emily was saying, to adjudicate this right now because of because of uh, the politics of the moment. Emily, Please. just I would just want to apologize. I did not mean to imply that you were saying that. No, you, no, it's OK. I mean, I think like there are people who would probably prefer to see this not investigated. I'm not one of them. Like, I'm all for reporters asking questions. I think Joe Biden is going to have to answer to this. And look, I'm not a Joe Biden supporter. I mean, from my point of view, six months ago, if this had come forward, like, I would have cared much less about the truth or not truth of it. I would have just thought, like, well, this is someone who already has things against him that I don't like. So, like, let's move on to someone who doesn't have these problems. Um, It's just that we're in a different universe now, obviously. 
And I do think that there have been these questions about how we judge veracity, what standard of evidence and due process we have that are extend beyond this case that, I mean, I have been raising some questions about for a while. So I don't feel personally like I have to, you know, uh, like answer for some previous set of stances, um, you know, well, anyway. And one thing I can say is I, I think I do remember from the Blasey Ford era, Emily making the case or or supporting the notion, which I thought was, you know, that of course you should investigate her, her claims and be able to ask questions, if for no other reason than to affirm the durability of the of the claims being raised. I mean, that's the reason you investigate the background of the person making the claims is because if you don't, if, if well, as a journalist, it's your job. But, um, but also, if you're trying to get to the bottom of things, the claim has to be able to withstand the scrutiny or else it doesn't, you know, you, you're hanging a whole person's reputation on a on something you're choosing not to investigate. And but but during the Ford period, there was definitely a, a, a pretty significant number of people who sat on the sidelines ready to throttle anyone who suggested pushing against her claims. Emily was not one of them. Yes. Thank you. So, so John, let's go to that. Let's finish up with kind of the tactical piece of this, which is Biden has so far really not responded to this. It is not clear how this might play in a general election campaign, whether Trump can weaponize it or whether it just makes it just inoculates Trump. It doesn't really give him a weapon against Biden. It just prevents Biden from using a weapon against him. Biden has not picked a running mate yet, so it is not clear like how the running mate might have to deal with this or play defense for it or might again inoculate Biden. But what's your if you were if you were a tactician looking at this from Biden's perspective, what are the things that he needs to do right now or think about right now? The Biden campaign has said that the allegations are false and that they need to be vetted, which is already something that's um, kind of shrinks the room that he's got. If it's not false 100 percent and he ultimately has to come out and do say something that's kind of fuzzy, if he has to say something that's short of this is 100 percent not true, the fact that they originally claimed false and then he's not there ultimately is a problem because then it looks like they're shilly shallying with this important and crucial subject. A. B. It, it affirms all the shilly shallying that Donald Trump has done, even though one should not lose for a second a, uh, the sense of proportion here. Biden has been accused of one kind of event, and then there's this pattern that was he was also accused of. But Donald Trump has been accused of something much more serious um, by multiple people over a long period of time. So you don't want to lose that sense of proportion. But the even having to say that um, kind of helps Donald Trump more than it does Joe Biden, certainly. So that's the one problem. Then, what, like, what does it mean to vet her claims? They're, they're, in, they're inviting kind of a thorough ex examination of the accuser here in a way, again, you know, if, if Lindsey Graham, and he, maybe he did say this, you know, we need to vet Christine Blasey Ford, uh, I think people would have um, reacted strongly. So that's just a challenge for the campaign that already exists. I think then, you know, one of the things that was... Um, powerful and a, and a sign of, of one of his skills with President Obama is when he was a candidate and the, and the sermons of his pastor came out that he had to, and he had to give a speech on race. He did it. He wrote the speech himself in an incredibly short period of time, and it was eloquent 
and reflected deep and considered thought over a lifetime of wrestling and understanding that issue. So he met the moment with something more than just a short press release or a short statement. And it actually ended up, I think, probably helping him in terms of showing his stuff in a way in a moment of crisis. So this is a test for Biden, a test that turns out is like a you know kind of test he'll receive as, as president. Now, what does he actually say? No idea. That's why I'm not in that business. I mean, he has to say something that's plausible enough, um, but that also doesn't alienate his supporters who um, believe that women should be believed, you know, 100 percent. So but then he's also got to not not self-incriminate. And he's also got to furnish all of his surrogates with an answer. His surrogates, both of the people who pound the yarn signs and are going to have this debate over the back fence to put in some political cliches. And he's got to help give an answer to Amy Klobuchar when she goes out there campaigning for him and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and all kinds of other people who are uh, and and men as well, but who he, they have to basically everybody has to agree on one response because the final thing is you don't want to have to be answering this at every single stop from now until the end of time because when you're an incumbent who's on the ropes the way Donald Trump is, your job basically politically is to savage your opponent. You're not going to be able to rebuild your side. So you have to basically tear down the other side. So the answer from Biden has to be durable enough to to live through that. And that's a super tall order. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And as we've talked about in the last few weeks, Slate is going through some hard times in the way that a lot of great journalistic outlets are going through hard times. And we know you support Slate. You listen to this podcast. And we would ask you, if you are not a Slate Plus member, to consider becoming a member today. You get lots of bonus podcasts. You get uh, extra content that Slate creates for you. The The whole Slow Burn series came out as a as a Slate Plus product. The, one of the great podcasts of the last couple of years was a Slate Plus product. And Slate really needs, needs the help. And so if you want to support great journalism and you want to give Slate a fighting chance and give them the chance to really cover the pandemic world, the election, the post-pandemic world, please consider becoming a Slate Plus member today. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Also, I should mention, what are we talking about on Slate Plus today? I didn't even mention that. We're, what are we talking about? We're talking about uh, human challenge trials. Should people be infected with COVID-19 as part of a vaccine trial to speed up the development of a vaccine? That's what we're going to talk about on Slate Plus. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Emily, should colleges and grade schools reopen in the fall? Oh, this, this is like the most heartbreaking question for me. I am just going to put my cards on the table. I desperately want schools and universities to open, partly just because my own children need to go back to school selfishly, but really just because I'm so concerned about all of the lost learning and the uptick in child abuse reports we see. And just the fallout from disrupting young people's lives. Like, I just am deeply concerned about that. And the other thing is that it's not really clear that the fall is going to be any different from the winter or the spring next year if the vaccine timetable is what we expect. And so we're not just making a kind of temporary decision. We're making one that's more medium term. A lot of institutions, especially the ones that don't have, like, big endowments and lots of wealth are going to go under um, if they have to stay shuttered for a medium to long-term period. And I really, really worry about that and just the enormous fallout from it. So 
I guess what I would say is this. I don't think we know the answers right now, but there are some things that make me feel like it's super worth thinking really hard about how this could happen, possibly. It's seeming to become clearer that inside is more dangerous than outside. Now, school mostly like or has lots of inside settings, so it's not exactly clear how to use that, but I feel like if we could figure out some way in which to have air circulating better in indoor spaces or just spread people out more inside. That's already part of social distancing. And then just to use the outside, that could help. And then the other thing is the... <laughs> the New Haven, New Haven in November. That'd exactly. Be great. I know. I really want to go to class. I know. It doesn't I'd like to go to English class. <laughs> on the New Haven Common this on is, November 15th. Yeah, this is that actually a ideal. much better argument about the summer, like figuring out how to have camp or some summer kind of sessions where you use the outdoors. I haven't really thought through my outdoor argument for um, November yet on the East Coast uh, or most of the country. But then the other thing is kids, and they are just at less risk, kids and young people. And so can we figure out how to use that to the advantages of schools and universities opening up? I think the biggest problem is that there obviously are older people, staff and faculty who work at these places who are at higher risk. And so are we going to have to shift from the current situation in which we're all kind of in this together to one in which it's on some people are at higher risk to isolate and, and other people get to resume more normal activity? And that is going to be really wrenching and it's going to be especially wrenching for school and universities communities which like should be places in which in a normal situation we are all in this together um those values are really going to be intention and um and that's hard what do you guys think yeah you know the problem too is that you could imagine a wonderful experiment in which you found a couple of schools that had some of the right idiosyncrasies that you'd want. In other words, a relatively closed campus, so you could test everybody and keep the bubble relatively clean from outside interference so that you could quickly identify people who were sick, um, isolate them, um, check for contact tracing within the other people, and kind of do a slow turn-up of how to get this right in a few places and then scale that once you figured out how to get it right. The problem is all these schools have to plan. All these families have to plan. Everybody's got the fall to think about. And so you don't necessarily have time to work all that out in one or two places, which opens you to the problem that Emily is talking about. You know, one of the goals, obviously, as we all know, one of the goals here is to get to a position not necessarily where there are obviously zero cases. Um, the reason I feel like I have to say this out loud is because it's irritating in a lot of the conversations that you have people, you know, um, stereotyping the various sides and arguing basically that anybody who wants to slowly get back to uh, a more functioning life is um, is in the camp of not want, you know of wanting to get to zero before doing anything, which is obviously not the case. So the point here is is to not overload the hospitals. So if you if you had a place where basically you would have to make a bet that you would do everything you possibly could, but you would recognize that you're going to have some cases, and those cases are going to hopefully be whatever number is comfortable enough underneath the capacity of the hospitals, and hopefully you have, you know, there's this one drug trial that turns like looks like it might shorten by thirty percent the the recovery period, maybe you have some of that making hospital stays less gruesome than they are now. And you basically are somebody's gonna have to roll the dice. 
And implicit in rolling that dice is is that you're going to basically be saying some number of people are going to get sick because they're older and therefore more immunocompromised or or maybe that's not what they are, but they tend to be the victims more. You're going to be putting some older faculty members in a tougher spot. Final point is this. I wonder if you could arrange a way to do classes in a way that somebody who was in a vulnerable population could participate in, you know, I don't know how you would do it, but... um, I actually think that stuff is relatively possible. Like, you know, you could have faculty who feel like they're at older risk who continue to teach on Zoom or who figure out how to be in, like, huge auditoriums far separated from other people. I actually think the harder part is the staff, right? So when I think about, like, my university and how it runs and, like, the people who are custodians or are serving food or, you know, the people who live in New Haven in my city, like, a lot of them are older. Some of them are going to be in this higher risk category and they can't teach by Zoom or, like, clean up or serve food by Zoom. And so I'm much more concerned about them and how to figure out how to not force them back to work, but also not fire them so that they don't have any money. And so I wonder if, like, you can create categories where there are people who are paid some of their salary but don't have to work or people whose jobs can be changed to accommodate the higher level of risk. The I, I have so many thoughts on this. First of all, and I welcome if you guys know the answer to this, I would like the answer now, but if I don't, I'd like to hear the answer from... If you don't, I'd like to hear the answer from our listeners. The military is a an institution which is mostly staffed with a lot of young people, and the military is operating. I assume the United States has not turned off our self-defense during this crisis. I, they probably are dialed it down. Not everyone's on alert. And we all know the, the case of the, the aircraft carrier where there was a huge spike in infections. But there are hundreds of thousands of people who work for the U.S. military who have to protect the country and who are continuing to do that. So how is that happening? And is, are there any models for how that might then play out if you did it in similarly, slightly, somewhat cloistered institutions like schools and universities? So that's number that's one question. question and point. I think it is, a, it is a necessity for schools and sort of a necessity for universities to reopen. It's a necessity for schools to open because... The economy literally depends on schools existing. The whole way the economy functions in this society, if you, especially if you don't have places where you can, is that we have places where you stash children during the day and those children can be taken care of and where parents do not have to think about it and don't have to worry about it. And you can get groups of children all together and so that parents can then go do work. And that is a, that is a fundamental necessity. The most productive people in our economy are people who have children from the ages of zero to 20. That's they're in their prime working age. They need to be able to do that. And unless schools are open and daycare centers are open, and to a certain extent, unless universities are open, people's work lives are impossible. So it actually is a, it's a necessity. It is the most important thing for reopening the economy, if whatever that expression means. And can so, I just interrupt so, you to say that one of the things I find so frustrating about the federal government's phases is that it doesn't recognize that. So like phase one is people go back to work and phase two is kids go back to school. Like how is that supposed to happen? Go ahead. Sorry. Yes. Okay. That is, I 100% agree. It is, it's always seemed weird. Going to the how they reopen. I think Mitch Daniels, the president of Purdue, has laid out, in theory, an interesting model. So Purdue, which is a famously great school for engineering, practical problem solving, uh, has 
said we're going to reopen to students in the fall and we're going to do some kind of segregation whereby people who are under 35 are going to be in one category. People who are over 35 or under 35 and in that risk category are going to be another. And we're going to, as much as possible, allow normal life. There will be testing, uh, contact tracing, presumably be more physical segregation of people. They're going to, there's going to have to, it's not, it's obviously not going to function exactly as it did, but there's a goal to try to reopen with this, these kinds of two classes of people. I think it's a super interesting test. I think John's point, though, that you can't just rely on a couple of universities to test this is really important. Also, for peer pressure reasons, which is that once one university in your peer group decides to open, every university in that group is going to have an enormous pressure to open because no one wants to be the school which isn't allowing its students back. Students are desperate to get back. And if you're the one school in your state, in your conference, in your your block of schools that says, no, 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 we, it's not safe for us. Your students, they may be avoiding infection, but they're going to be really pissed and disappointed. So I think there's a, there's a first mover thing, which is going to cause lots of other schools to follow. And once it's, once one or two schools are opening in the fall, everyone's going to reopen because no one wants to be the school that isn't open when their peers are open. They can't afford it. Most of them will not have the resources and capacity to do as much testing as the best schools and the richest schools are going to be able to. And that means that it's going to be, they're going to be hotspots and clusters in schools and in universities. And that's an issue. If I were running the world, um, I think that, you know, schools also have, just if you're trying to goose the country, if you're trying to change the psychological makeup of the country and you're thinking that in the fall, we surely will be further along down the road or we, we would want to be further along down the road and being able to find ways to get back to um, something approximating, something approximating normal. At least we should schools, have tests. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, the, 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 well, just I've been spending some time looking at the Great Depression and just the, the kind of flaccid lack of creation, creativity in terms of the testing question from, um, from the uh, quarters of leadership is, a, is kind of extraordinary. Um, but you want schools open because it's fresh faced sense of hope and possibility. And um, so if you were purely looking at this from a kind of what's a shot in the arm for the country and proof that there will be a better day, you could imagine it's a better it's a great investment to solve this problem to help schools solve this problem. This isn't to say that there aren't other huge problems and that the people who've been disproportionately slammed by this, you know, are going to be helped by seeing a bunch of privileged kids go to college. But while you're working on that set of problems, which is real and dire and important, there is a symbolic benefit to doing something which might actually not require, uh, it might not be as hard a problem to solve. And therefore, you might say, put two people on just solving, helping schools solve this problem, whereas you put 100 people on the other issue. The country's going to need a variety of different kinds of lifts, and this seems a relatively um, low-cost one that could have a potentially slightly larger impact, particularly with the portion. Because one of the things you're trying to do is build confidence in the country so people go out and spend money again in a consumer-driven economy, as David pointed out a million years ago. You can say you've opened up the economy again, but until people feel that the that that w- life is getting a little more normal, they're not going to go spend in the way that the economy needs to get going again. 
Can I just say, like, that the worst possible outcome will be if it's the privileged kids going to the rich colleges and the rich private schools, K through 12, and everyone else? Yes. Like, that is my biggest fear, I think, because um, that cannot be. Like, many, many unprivileged people go to college or university and, of course, go to K through 12. And whatever we do, it has to be for them. And that's a matter of resources, right? Like, we're not stuck. It's not, like, think of these trillions of dollars our government is spending right now. We do not have to be stuck in a world in which, like, the colleges with less money don't can't open and everyone else and can. That, I've never seen John to, more eager to interrupt and make no, no, no. I No, no, His because he's so animated. Because, well, no, because it's like that that has to if you're doing the like you know, we run the world uh part of this, you would if you were smart, it seems to me as a politician, you would go right at that because you 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 need the sense of hope in quarters where, you know, um, I mean, you need sense of hope in quarters that have been particularly hard hit. And so, yes, you would do exactly that. I was on the phone last week with a friend of mine who um, lives in L.A. whose kids in private school, and she was describing the plan that they were already, you know, basically marketing to the parents and like they're in a position where they can spread the kids out more and take a lot of precautions. There's a lot of money. And I thought, oh my God, they're going to open and the public schools are going to really, really struggle. Like that is going to be these kinds of steps that she's describing, like how are public schools going to pull this off? And I got so angry. Now, obviously, if we decide that there's no safe way to do the schools at all, that's one thing. But this does feel to me like it's a solvable problem. And then it needs to be one in which we put more care and attention into the institutions that need more resources. I want to make a slightly separate point in closing here, which is just that one of the outcomes of this, I suspect, is a huge bloodletting in the middle tier of colleges and universities. So the top tier, top universities are going to have the resources to survive. There's going to have, they're still going to be huge demand for their services. There's still going to be people wanting to come to those University of Chicago and Yale from all over the world and from the United States and people who are going to want to make donations and they have tons of research funding and they are going to do well. And I think at the bottom tier in community colleges, technical schools, there will continue to be demand because people need practical educations. I think what is going to happen is that if colleges and universities are not able to reopen quickly and more or less in the same way that they have always existed, these middle schools are going to be in deep, deep trouble because they won't be able to getting the tuition they need to survive. They don't have the endowments to buttress them. They are not going to be able to get the foreign students in. And I think we're going to see a, a real loss of the kind of small, small and medium colleges and medium universities that are tuition dependent are going to get wiped out. And the shape of higher education in the country is going to get worse. Those schools which serve a kind of middle, middle are going to not exist. And so it's going to be the elite schools and the kind of more practical schools are going to dominate. And that's a bad situation. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. 
Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Scott Kelly is an American astronaut who spent a year on the International Space Station. He also wrote a fantastic book about that, which came out in 2017, Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. It is a genuinely fascinating, useful book about what it is like to spend a year in a very, very small space. Scott Kelly, welcome to the GabFest. Where are you joining us from? I'm in Texas. And so you are in lockdown the same as the rest of us. Uh, do you complain less because you've been through this before or not? Do you complain as much as everyone else does? I actually try not to complain because I recognize that it doesn't help and it makes the people around you more um, irritable. So, but, but having said that, I should probably ask my wife and she'll probably say, oh, you complain all the time. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> Well, it's good to have the illusion that one is behaving well. I probably don't complain about the situation of living in quarantine. I probably complain about other things that's going on. <laughs> Do you think that the kind of sense of purpose and clarity that you had, which I think for a lot of people is lacking right now, is that something we could actually attain as a country? I mean, obviously being an astronaut is like like a million times cooler than being in quarantine. But I just imagine that that is such a key part of the job and the mission. And um, and I wonder what you think about that. Having a mission and a purpose is very important. When I, uh, I've flown in space four times and my, my third flight, which was my first long duration flight, it was just under six months. And, um, you know, towards the end of that six months, the last third, I would say, I kind of felt like uh, this is time to be over, you know, climbing the walls a little bit. And, uh, you know, then I came home, had the opportunity to fly in space again for a year. Initially, wasn't really that interested, but I wanted to fly again. I wanted to be more challenging. And I knew that something being that long would be challenging uh, psychologically. So I had a plan going into it and uh, some things I thought about. One thing that really, really helped was the mission. And part of my mission was to be there for a long time. So the idea that that was my purpose made that duration easier. I think people finding a mission in this is very, very important. And uh, Scott, from your time in the Navy and as a, um, when you were commanding the space station as a, as a leader, Take it from the other end of the telescope. If if a, what's the leader's role, wherever they may come from, whether it's in the community or the governor or the president, 
the role of a leader to help people find a mission uh, in a time when they may not have signed up for this? Well, you know, there are two types of leaders. You know, there's those that are appointed and those that kind of rise to the occasion. You know, that might be the head of the household. It might be someone else. It might be someone that's just more uh, capable um, and adept. I mean, there are times when the leader needs to be the dictator on the space station. That was very, very rare where you need to be the authoritarian. You know, if there's an emergency, you need to act immediately. But then there are times where the leaders... uh, you know, sometimes a coach, sometimes a cheerleader, sometimes a counselor, uh, sometimes just a teammate and just one of the team. So, Scott, going back to to your piece for The New York Times about this and then to guidance you offered in your book, you have as much experience as almost anyone on Earth about what it's like to be isolated and claustrophobic. Give us a couple of your most important principles of how to thrive through this and why you think they matter to us now? Well, I have probably as much experience short of people that have been in prison. Good point. And I'm not just talking about people that were sentenced to prison. I'm also talking about like political prisoners, you know, one of which this guy, Alan Gross, actually, uh, who was a political prisoner in Cuba released in 2015 I met before I flew in space and one thing he said to me he was like hey whatever you do don't count the days because <laughs> it'll drive you crazy now it turned out I kind of had to a little bit I was kind of forced into it because I was told hey you've beaten this person's record that person's record so I counted up but I tried not to count down and one thing I found is focusing on things that you have no control over uh, you know is the things that generate anxiety, it generates fear. I remember my first space flight being, you know, I'd say you're a little scared, right? Uh, you realize that this is the last thing you might ever do. But at some point, you've made the decision, well, regardless of being scared, you're going to get on that rocket, and being scared is not going to help you. And focusing on the things you have control over allows you to, you know, make better decisions, make better choices. Um and a lot of other things. I actually exercise uh, very, very important in space. One thing that we can't do very well is get sunlight, but that's also important. So I encourage you know people to get exercise and sunlight because that affects our mental health. It affects, as a result, our physical health and our immune systems. Um, other things in my schedule is taking care of the environment itself, the space station. Uh, viruses and bacteria grow much quicker in space for some reason. And uh, I kind of treat my front door like an airlock on the space station. <laughs> you know, bad stuff outside, good stuff inside. And um, having a, a, a schedule that is not just about work uh, is important. So hobbies, things that you could do that's a complete distraction. Art, music. If you can do neither of those, you can read a book. Uh, not your iPad or your phone, maybe your real book that uh, doesn't have <laughs> notifications when something weird happens outside your house. You know, I kept a journal in space. Now, I, the reason I did it was because uh, I thought I might want to write a book, but you can do that for uh, other purposes as well. Uh, you know, especially if you're feeling alone, if you are physically alone or maybe you're mentally alone in this situation. I think having this uh, a journal is a cathartic thing. You know, when you're writing down your thoughts, at least you're kind of admitting that this is a challenge. And I think it's important for people to admit when things are tough. 
And then you'll have something when this is over for probably what might be one of the most historic events of your your lifetime. Scott, one of the things you write about is the importance of relying on experts, which in space, I can imagine that at this point, we know a lot and the experts can give you sound advice based on experience and a kind of long run of thinking through the problems and issues you're confronting. In some ways, this pandemic is different because it is changing and kind of confounding the experts to some degree. And some of their advice over time, I think, you know, not the basics, but some of it has changed as we figure out more. And I wonder how you're feeling about the um, level of expertise and the way they've been communicating with us, the public. When I talk about experts, I'm talking about scientists that work for governments or, or universities that are scientifically minded people that have spent their careers on these type of issues. And yes, this is an evolving situation. They will not be right all the time, but they will be right more often than the people that have no experience or background or, you know, in some cases, uh, any basic levels of intelligence. So even though sometimes the experts are wrong, that, that's the best you have. You know, what I found at NASA is everything was not rocket science, but when it was, it was better to consult the rocket scientist than, uh, you know, no offense to the people in HR just came to my mind, but you don't call, you know, the head of HR for a science problem, right? So trusted sources in media, you know, get your information from the right places, not your Facebook friends. I mean, they might be smart, but they don't work for the CDC. They don't work for the national. I mean, they might, but unlikely. So, you know, find your information, get your information from the right places. When things got when there was an emergency or a or a you know, a situation that required focus of everybody on the team, um, you had to kind of follow very strict procedures that were laid out beforehand, but also adapt. I wonder if you could just talk about that mix, because one of the things that's been frustrating to a lot of people is watching the kind of pell-mell rush to to handle this, yeah. and, and that nobody's kind of following the rules that are there now, and then yeah, anyway, so I just want your sort of assessment of the, the, the crisis response here. You know, two quotes come to mind about the plan and, uh, you know, how things are always changing. There's a I don't, I don't know who, who, what military person said this. I got to look it up. But uh, there's a quote, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Mm-hmm. You, you develop the best plan you can, understanding that that plan is probably going to change as the situation warrants. And then the other one I like better is uh, a quote from Mike Tyson that is, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. <laughs> it's like one of my favorite quotes of all time. <laughs> Not only uh, does life evolve, this virus evolves and, and how it uh, behaves in our society. So we need to understand that we're going to change. And then secondly, when I interviewed you uh, for Face Nation when you were up there, and you talked about how you had one of the best views uh, out your window. Um, what do you look at now that you're down on the earth that gives you the same sense of wonder that you used to be able to look at when you'd watch two sunrises a day or however many you could watch? Um, we're, building a, I'm, we're building a house in Colorado, and we're probably going to move there like in the beginning of June. So I, our neighbors take some pictures of now and then. I just look at that. And, you know, it's kind of... I live in downtown Houston now, and this is kind of out in nature. So that's what I look at pictures of our 
places it's being built um, for my, you know, personal inspiration. Sounds like a good move right now. <laughs> yeah. Scott Kelly is the author of Endurance, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. Scott, thank you for joining us. I hope you and your family stay safe and healthy. Thanks for coming. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Good seeing you guys again. Let us go to cocktail chatter. I uh, have been reduced to um, to having beer, which I don't really like to have as my cocktail. But uh, there's just for some reason I have beer and I don't have anything else. So my cocktail is a beer. What is your cocktail, Emily? And what are you going to chatter about while you have it? Uh, this is sort of related to what we were just talking about, but there is a amazing, I thought, story by Linda Viorosa in the Times Magazine. Yes, I know, my home team. But it's about <laughs> the racial disparities of COVID in America. And it just really, I mean, this has become a kind of, uh, I hope, uh, well-known aspect of the virus. But it really brings to life what that means and how hard it is to deal with um, in this moment. So I really recommend that. Um, Linda Viorosa the times magazine online it's called a terrible price john what's your chatter yeah which is important because there was a there was a there was a sliver of a moment where people were saying the covid is a great leveler you know it hits rich and poor alike which is just uh basically the totally opposite um i guess two things my first was um a chatter about uh, what Governor Gretchen Whitmer is doing in Michigan, um, which is we were just basically talking about it. So I'm going to downplay it a little bit. But she is introducing she's basically introducing a GI bill for frontline workers, helping them prepare for their futures by giving them. And the details are a little murky here, but basically by um, giving free college and vocational school making tuition free for those who are on the front lines of responding for to COVID-19, people staffing the hospitals, nursing homes, the people stocking the shelves at grocery stores, or even people providing childcare. I think it's um, somewhat fuzzy at the moment. But what I, of course, liked about it is that it represents sort of at least creative thinking um, in Washington as people are talking about whether to give sort of hazardous duty pay to people who are on the front lines. And whether you support what what Whitmer is thinking about, the idea is like at least more, much more creative than most of the other ideas we're hearing. Okay, enough of that. Um, so it's worth um, pay, keeping an eye on that. The other thing is um, this crazy story in BuzzFeed about this dude who um, you basically have to read it, but um, basically he tweets at the president about how he can build. Uh, ventilators. ventilators. I'm so glad yeah. you are. Oh my God, this raise. Yeah. This is such a hair raising story. I'm so glad you brought it so, up. So, President Trump posted on Twitter that he was urging Ford and General Motors to, you know, all caps, start making ventilators now. So, there are thousands of replies. One of them is from a guy uh, named Yaron Oren Pines, who's an electrical engineer in Silicon Valley. He makes mobile phone technology. And he tweeted, um, and said, we can supply ICU ventilators, invasive and non-invasive, have someone call me urgent. So that's a single tweet response. And according to BuzzFeed, this fellow then got $69.1 million from New York State to make uh, 1,400 uh, ventilators. According to the story, the um, and the state official gives them this, that it was basically directed from the White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force. So... 
you know how this story ends, but let's just button it up. Nearly a month later, New York closed the contract. The state is trying to get get back its money because it turns out that um, there were no ventilators. Couldn't do it. The BuzzFeed reached the Orrin Pines fellow and he said, I'm not talking and hung up. So it's not just we knew there was going to be waste, fraud and abuse. Um, uh, In fact, Jonathan Alter told me recently that the word boondoggle actually comes from the waste, fraud and abuse that was perpetrated during the New Deal as they were throwing out money. And so we knew there was going to be abuse, but like this is just sort of at the moment has first position in one of those tales of, of the the pell-mell kind of nutty management of this moment. And it's why people who, orga- who argue for a systematic way of doing things argue for a systematic way of doing things. My chatter, two chatters, first a personal news, which is that I have a new thing that I'm doing. So... I am writing a newsletter for Business Insider with Henry Blodgett, the CEO and and founder of Business Insider, the publication that broke some of the Tara Reid news this week. And Henry and I are writing a daily newsletter about the news. And I would urge you to check it out. We are just getting the hang of it. It's a Monday to Friday newsletter. Go to read.bi slash plots, read.bi slash plots. It's fun. It's interesting. And Henry's really smart. Um, and those of you who listen to the show over the years know whether or not you want to hear takes from me or not. But uh, I'm, you I'm do. excited to be you back to, to, yes, definitely. I'm excited to be back to regular writing. So please check it hey, out. Hey, David. Insider. Yes. Hey, David, how do I check it out if I want to? I just said, John, go to read.bi slash plots. I literally said it 12 seconds ago when you were doing I, something It's else. always good to repeat I know, it. But dude, <laughs> someone you who might have re- looked away for a second. You <laughs> want to repeat it because people who are on their jog yeah. and were perambulating up yeah, the that's mountain true. and thought, read, hey, this sounds like a good idea. Read.bi slash plots. Read.bi. You see, because some people might have written down a period. and So now they've got it right in the, right, right in the beginning of the brain. You're pan. absolutely right. And then quickly, just a real chatter, I just want to call attention to. In fact, I wrote about this for this newsletter, Insider Today, that Henry and I are writing. Um, an amazing statistic that I saw this week, which is that cities across the, across the world have now closed more than a thousand miles of streets to cars. This includes new bike lanes in cities all over the world. It's it's uh, urban uh, walking streets, pedestrian streets, um, but car-free streets that people never imagined could happen. And of course, some of this is obviously going to be temporary when you don't have commuters, you don't need to have as many streets that cars are on, but some of it could be permanent. And let us encourage those cities that have tried this to think about making some of these shifts permanent, making some of those parkways, in fact, just bike and pedestrian parkways, because the evidence that I've seen is that everyone hates it in advance. They hate the idea of giving up parking or giving up a street. But once you put in a bike lane, once you close a street to traffic, people tend to be very happy and the quality of life in that area tends to go up rapidly. So I hope this this change, which is basically this is policy by tragedy, but I hope that it it is a small good thing that continues. And you can follow this at the hashtag COVID-19 streets is tracking a lot of these changes. Uh, listeners, have you guys discovered, this is a totally, this is actually, this is not a chatter, but I discovered the most amazing function on my computer this week. What? Do you know? Do pa- tell. Paste and match style 
Do you know what that is? No. So often if you're like, oh, on, you want to mass destination formatting. That's what it's called in word. Oh, maybe that's what it is. Oh my God. It's, it saves what? your life. I know, Paul. It saves your so life. It's the best thing ever. I totally agree. You mean when you copy and paste from another document and it's on some other font and then like. Yeah. It's yeah. And it's that, like a yeah. 72 point and like in, in Comic Sans. It and turns then you... out that little like briefcase that hovers, if you click on it, has this thing called ma- match destination. I think that's what it's called. Anyway. Oh, yeah. and in. Uh, in Chrome, which is what I mostly do things with, it's uh, paste and match style. I think it's Control Shift V. Woof, so good. Yeah. Um, you know what else you can do? Or maybe this is your point. I missed the beginning while you were talking. <laughs> or Command Shift V. Yeah. What? Um, well, because the Control backslash too, which takes if you drop it in, you can just it immediately formats it to whatever the underlying format was on Google Docs. Really? Um, yeah. Whoa. So it actually strike that it it yeah no I think that's what it removes formatting it removes the whatever removes crap formatting. it came with yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah that's what you want but the match destination formatting is great though if you want to highlight inside Google Documents because once you load um, Alt Control C you can load like a certain color highlighting and then when you highlight text and hit Alt Control V it will highlight whatever you've selected in that particular highlighting so if you want to do, instead of having to mouse over the part you want to select then call down from the menu and click the right highlighter you can just do it with a hotkey this is like advanced uh word processing this is this, this is, is like our slate plus this should just be our slate plus segment yeah <laughs> that was helpful uh, yeah anyway listeners you also have <laughs> submitted chatters none as useful as paste and match style but a lot that are more diverting so many nice ones again this week please continue tweeting them to us at slate gabfest and this week's Listener chatter comes from at Universal Fiend. I love your Twitter handle, by the way. And it's about, have you heard about this fantastic, insane, beautiful, and completely unplanned adventure? And it points to a New York Post story about a group of Dutch students who were on a cruise in the Caribbean, on a sailing cruise in the Caribbean, on a, on a sailboat, 60, foot, oh, 60 meter long uh, schooner called the Wild Swan. And they were supposed to dock in Cuba and then fly back from Cuba. But um, COVID-19 being what it is, these 25 high school students could not dock in Cuba and fly home. So they sailed this boat five weeks across the Atlantic Ocean, 5,000 miles uh, with a crew, with a crew, not just the students. But it's what an amazing story of adventure that these kids will be able to tell. And they made it back safely and, and have a great tale to tell. That is our show for today. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. You will get new episodes the second they're published. Whatever app you're listening to us on, you can subscribe on. The Political Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Man, those two work really hard and do such a good job for us. Thank you, guys. So true. Reminded every week. But, man, so good. All the emails, Joss reminding about batteries. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is the managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest, and please tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We hope you are healthy. We hope you're safe. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Thank you for being a Slate Plus member as we said during the show, it's so important. It's such a great way to support Slate and make it possible for us to continue doing 
podcast and the extra segments and for Slate to continue doing the great journalism that it does. Today, we want to talk about human challenge studies, human challenge trials for the corona vaccine. So, uh, Emily, do you want to talk about what those are or do you want me to describe what they are? You describe. You'll do a better job. I think so I hope you do it. In the normal course of a vaccine research, you will give a perspective after a bunch of safety testing, initial safety testing, you will give a vaccine to a population um, and then wait to see if that population gets infected with the disease and, and a placebo. You also give a placebo uh, vaccine to another group of people and you'll give it to, let's say, thousands of people and you'll wait to see over months and months, will they get infected with the disease? Will they get infected with measles or mumps? And hopefully uh, you will discover that the vaccine, the people who are given the vaccine either do not get infected at all or get infected at vastly lower rates than the people who were given the placebo. And uh, at the end of many months, you will notice that, oh, 10% of the people who were given the placebo have gotten the mumps and 0% of the people who are given the mumps vaccine have gotten the mumps. This looks like it's a pretty good vaccine. Um, but the key point is you just wait to see whether people get the disease. The idea of a human challenge trial, which people are talking about for COVID-19, is that you don't wait. You just give people the disease. You expose that you give them the vaccine and then you expose them to the disease to see what happens. And the idea of this is that you will find out very, very quickly if this vaccine works because you don't need to wait for the ambient possible exposure to take place. Um, it is an ethically questionable thing to do. It has been done with influenza. It's been done with malaria. Um, but the idea of doing with COVID-19 is very alarming because there are no current therapies for COVID-19 and because COVID-19 kills a lot of people. And so you would, if the vaccine doesn't work, you are exposing people to a disease that they, that cannot be treated and that they could die from. Uh, so is it ethical for us to conduct human challenge vaccine trials? Emily Bazelon. So I am in favor of this with some limits. I mean, I think you want to have a really well-designed, carefully monitored trial to make the risk as minimal as possible for people. And you want to make sure that this is really necessary to speed up the development of the vaccine. One reason why that may be the case is actually the declining rates of infection in at least some parts of the world. So last week when I was reading about the Oxford team that's developing a vaccine and seems to have a, a head start, they're, I think, pretty close to being ready or will soon go to um, – the normal kind of vaccine trials you described, where you give some people the vaccine and then just see what happens in their normal course of life. And they were saying, well, I mean, there was actually a quote in the piece that was like, we're the only people who hope the pandemic continues for a few more weeks because we're worried we're going to have to go chase it to another part of the world because there won't be a high enough level of infection in normal community to really be able to show whether this works. Now, of course, like the pan we do not want the pandemic to continue, but that shows the difficulty of the longer, um, more standard means of doing these kinds of vaccine trials. And I guess for me, what's particularly eye-catching about this idea is that because we know that young people are at almost zero risk for mortality, um, at least if they're not immunocompromised, 
that seems really promising. Now, it doesn't mean that the vaccine couldn't be lethal, I suppose, but I think that once you test a vaccine in monkeys, you get pretty reassured, right? That like, it's probably not going to kill people. And then that helps you with this mm. kind of, no, is that not right? I, I, I think there's this, this, this phenomenon, which I'm now going to botch the name of, but something vaccine enhancement, where in some cases, a vaccine actually makes you more susceptible to a disease and it, the disease hits you harder. And the monkey so, part doesn't help them. I don't, they don't, can't I figure don't, that out. Not necessarily. Okay. No. So then there is a bigger risk here. Maybe I'm minimizing the risk in a way that I will regret later. I, this seems to me like just such, sorry, John, like such no, go, a no-brainer. Go. Such a no-brainer. I mean, the amount of human misery that is being caused by this vaccine, not just the deaths of people from the vaccine, but the human misery that's being caused by our the frozenness of the world, the lack of education, the poverty it's imposing, that there's a, a an organization uh, which has such a wonderful name, One Day Sooner, and getting a vaccine one day sooner literally will save thousands of lives and just enormous amounts of of human wealth and will reduce the stock of human misery in the future enormously. And what a day sooner does it a month sooner is just vastly even more three months sooner is more. And so if you can have a, a trial that is even slightly gives a slightly better chance of getting a vaccine sooner by all means. And there are already, I looked on one day sooner yesterday, there were already 9,000 or 8,000 people who had volunteered to participate in these human challenge trials, people who are willing themselves, who are saying, I am happy to be infected with this disease, take the risk because I believe it. You have a core, a core of volunteers who want to do it, who are eager to do it, who are happy to be useful. And it just, the, the, the idea that this would, if this is a thing that people think could possibly speed up the development of the vaccine, the idea that we wouldn't pursue it with all vigor seems to me insane. It is a, it is a, the, the net loss to the world right now is so enormous. And if people die because of the vaccine trial, that will be a tragedy and it will be terrible. And the pharma companies need to be shielded from liability suits uh, from those deaths. But, you know, they will have died in a cause that will be helping humanity enormously and saving lives in the future. So it's the easiest question I've looked at during this whole crisis, I feel. Do they um, is the argument is there an argument against doing it that is outside of the specific context? In other words, it's I guess it's the slippery slope argument, which is if you open it up for here, then um, then it provides a pathway for somebody to make the case why you should do it in some other instance where, you know, let's say uh, that was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.